What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? This is Chris Merriman, your host, on another episode of New York City Meets Bama with... Katerina. We all know being an entrepreneur is hard. and comes with lots of mental challenges and confidence struggles. For me, I've dealt with imposter syndrome and found that talking to someone has helped me find myself and strengthen my confidence. It can be difficult to navigate it on your own. Now, because of professional therapists, you don't have to. And that's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp can give you tools to approach your life in a very different way. No matter where you are, you can talk to a professional therapist that fits your unique needs and an affordable cost. Just fill out a few questions and BetterHelp can match you to a professional therapist in just days. Put yourself first and use BetterHelp services today and you will receive 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Use the link in the description below this show. You deserve to be happy too. Use the link betterhelp.com slash NYC meets Bama. Again, betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash NYC meets Bama. BetterHelp wants all of you to be as successful as possible and help you reach your fullest potential. Connect with a therapist today. We are back at it again. We're back on the topic of real estate. We've uh, gotten some questions from some uh, newer investors and and some guys that are working their way up through the ranks. So we are going to see if we can help assist through some of these hurdles that they're having. So let's dive into some of these questions. Yeah. All right, Chris. What common mistakes do new investors make and how can they avoid them? What common mistakes do new investors typically make and how to avoid them? Well, they typically get deal crazy once they lock up their first deal. So if they're actually doing investments other than just wholesaling, stay conscious of your numbers, right? Analyze these deals just like it's your first one. Always double verify with your realtors or your team or an appraiser. You start getting a little chaotic and getting focused on doing five deals per month instead of making X amount of money per month, right? That's the most common damaging cycle I see with new investors is making moves too fast on your buying strategies and getting too loose with your numbers in the process. Starting to go with the highest ARV instead of maybe a median ARV or the lower side, right? Buying properties that are higher at higher price points whenever you know the median in the area is you know, $250 and you buy a half a million dollar house, right? You're going to have longer days on market. If you did that and didn't account for your holding cost, well, then uh, you're going to run into a problem, right? So that's the number one mistake I see when investors go from wholesaling to actually investing and what starts to happen in their mind because their mentors and everybody's saying, do more deals, scale, volume, volume sexy, all that stuff. And it's really not. Focus on what's actually going into your piggy bank and track it. Yeah. Can you share strategies for funding affordable deals as a beginner with limited resources? Yeah, so can I find strategies for finding profitable deals as a beginner with limited resources? So yes, to find profitable deals, you can get profitable deals for from free leads, right? It happens all the time. Your Fizbo's, off the MLS, Craigslist posts, putting out bandit signs, Facebook Marketplace, all these things, right? Create free leads and that you have infinite access to because they're free. And that's a phenomenal way to get deals in studying and learning your own negotiation tactics through that process, as well as government lists, right? These things are free. It's public data. I say free. They may charge you a small surcharge to actually click the paperwork, but if you go into the courthouse and get it yourself, it's a free document. So, But if they have to print something off or make a copy, they may charge you for the paper itself. But code violations, 
probate, pre-foreclosure, tax delinquent, things like that are all free public records. So utilizing those is super essential starting out if you want to hire a motivated lead. But properly staying on top of your free leads will get you what you need, as well as JVs with other wholesalers, right? If you find the deal and they've got a buyer, you'll you'll finish out making money. Or if uh, they've got a deal and you've got the buyers, right? Easy access into into this game and, and getting started actually making money. So Yeah. At what point should an investor consider transitioning from free to paid lease sources? So, I don't think there should be a hard transition from free leads to paid leads. How I think that should be laid out is that once your time is absorbed in free leads and you've actually made and stockpiled a little bit of money, then you start spending a portion of that towards paid leads, right? So, now that your free leads are cranking, this paid lead machine should start working in the background because you're using money instead of your own time investment, right? So whereas you may have somebody else cold calling leads for you where you bought a list or the direct mail is going out and the leads are now inbound, that saves you time doing all the outreach, right? So now you are just trading money for dollars at that point. So that's really the transitioning point is whenever you have the excess funds and you're looking for a different strategy that requires money instead of your own time, that way you can scale faster and move in that direction. How does an investor typically evolve from bird dogging to wholesaling? Bird dogging to wholesaling. The number one way I'd say people evolve from that, if you start out as a bird dog, you're typically going to move into wholesaling by JVing or joint venturing or partnering with people. So you're bird dogging property for somebody, they're paying you a referral fee type of scenario most likely. And then you say, hey, I've got this deal, but we've already worked together. I want to partner on this. I want half the deal instead of my referral fee. I think I'm worth it now. It goes from that. And honestly, that's a strong strategy from going from wholesaling to flipping and wholesaling and rentals and things, right? Because if you partner with somebody on a wholesale deal, you get to see the whole works with it, go to the closing table with them, do all those things, and you get to see the full process so you have an understanding so you can get do it solo after that. Same thing with flips, right? You're like, hey, I'm going to partner with this deal. I've got the deal. You've got the team to rehab it. Even if you take a smaller cut, say, my biggest thing is that I want to make my cut the same way you do, but I want to watch your team execute on this flip and learn numbers and talk to your project manager or talk to you whenever you go, right? So you negotiate knowledge as your other portion of the deal. Same thing with rentals. You do the same process and all this. You say, I want to go sit down with you with the banker and see what they say or, or what did you have to give the banker, what financial documents and things of that nature, right? So you can trade off equity and financial gain with knowledge gain just by partnering with these people. And that's an easy way to rack up and step up the chain there, evolve. Hmm. All right. What are the signs that you're ready to move from wholesaling to flipping or holding properties? Transitioning from wholesaling to flipping and holding properties, there's going to be another level of confidence. Now, you're still probably going to be worried or scared about it first because you're entering the unknown, right? It's a new game. Now, if you've already worked yourself up by partnering with people, you're probably more confident. But a, a big stronghold is, is that what now correlates to your end goal, right? So is wholesaling only paying the bills and keeping the lights on and not supporting your end goal of having a retirement or, or owning Airbnbs and things like that? So that's whenever you say, I understand how to wholesale. I can always go back to that. I have enough money stockpiled. Can I execute on another strategy to acquire these, right? Do you have private money lined up already? Can you get bank financing for you know your rental property, things of that nature? Have you contacted some DSCR brokers to know if that's going to work? Is your credit all still jacked up? Whatever it is, whatever structure you need to get you to the next level has to be in place. And wholesaling gives you the base of deal analysis. So you have analyzed these deals and kept a track record of them to show private lenders, hey, I have the experience. I know what I'm looking at. 
hey, I partner with Jimmy on these flips, and I know all the metrics. I know how to quote these things out. I know what price per square foot things are going for in the area. You know, hey, I know what the Airbnb rental rates are. I've looked on AirDNA. I've got friends running them. I've actually partnered with some of these and helped them stage them and so I could be involved, right? Things of that nature. That will carry you a long way. So that's whenever I'd say you're now ready to transition. Whenever your goals align, your experience level is high enough that you can prove to somebody else you're not an extreme risk, right? You know what you're doing. You've got the experience level now, even if through living and working with other people. Yeah. How can an investor identify the real estate niche that aligns with their skills and market? Oh, so identifying the real estate niche that aligns with your skills and market. So I would actually say start with your market because some markets support different niches better than others. So, you know, you're picking your acquisition model. That can be sort of the same throughout, right? Whether you like high equity, out-of-state owners, or you like targeting probates or pre-foreclosures or things like that, or you're like, hey, why don't I need all this other stuff? I've got free leads. I get tons of deals off Craigslist and stuff based on your structure. But your exit strategies may dictate. So if you're, you know, you like one zip code, but it only supports rentals, that's what you've got to do. Or if that's what's growing the fastest in the area, you may be better off buying rental properties and just letting them appreciate with because you would have made the same money just turning them as wholesales or flips, right? So your market depicts a lot of what your exit strategies can be. And because the other people that you'll be partnering with and watching and, and learning from in that market do the same thing, that's where your skill sets will grow the fastest anyways. Now, whenever you transition markets, then you have to reanalyze, hey, what does this market support? And do I have the skill sets to do this? So now you have new skill sets to learn and a different market to analyze. So if you're in a market, that's where your skill sets will grow and likely where you'll how you'll select your niche by just being in that area. Now, if you start to specialize in a niche, such as you like trailer parks or self-storage or multifamily or all these other things, then you may have to say, okay, I now understand this bracket of asset class, right? You became an expert in that asset class. Now you learn to expand markets, analyze all the details that affect that asset class. Now that's selecting a different niche and that's the process you do. You would break in those asset classes and break them apart piece by piece and see how do they reflect in different markets. How did this market or asset class act in 08 whenever the market crashed and how was the city sized out and population growth and things like that? What will pull my asset class during a collapse or will it or what I need to expect will happen, right? So you deep dive into those to help identify your asset class. <laughs> and for a niching down, right? Decide if you want something that's going to be more recession-proof and for lower income, or if it's going to be something that you're looking for the most gain based on what your model is. It depends on your goal structure and set. That's what you're basing these things off of. Awesome. What public data sources are most useful for real estate investors? What public data sources are most useful for real estate investors? All of them. They're <laughs> all super essential because most of them are free, and you've got uh, access to them because public data is everywhere and people don't take advantage of it. So you have public access to divorce decrees and stuff like that, marriage certificates, probate docs, pre-foreclosure notices and things like that, Liz pendings, all that stuff. The code violations is public data. Water shutoff list is public. Like all these things that people don't take advantage of are public data. So... All that, even being able to do research on your own properties through the county websites so you can do your own probate or, or a title work assessment, things like that. If you're going to buy properties at the foreclosure auction, that may be important to you to move fast enough so that way you're not spending you know several thousand dollars a month on title work analyzing properties. So all of those pieces are super essential. Even for skip tracing, 
it's all public data. Where do you think they're getting their information? They're getting it from credit unions and things like that if they're a high-quality skip trace site. And if they're not, they're pulling it, just scraping uh, worldwide data, looking for things on these people because everybody's got a documented electronic trail following them from birth to your phone numbers to where you're living at now, where you received mail, and it's all public data. So it's super essential to understand you can track and follow anybody and you have the resources available and that's you have access to the highest motivational leads out there just at your fingertips. You just have to go get it because nobody lays it out pretty for you because they, there's a process behind acquiring them and things like that. Nobody wants to go through it. Hmm. What are the advantages of investing in less traditional assets classes like mobile home parks or self-storage. What are the advantages of investing in less traditional asset classes like mobile home parks and self-storage? So the advantage is that you can isolate an asset class and learn every nuance of that asset class and establish boundaries on it and metrics that your team can then follow on. So you take, you know, instead of going geographically after markets, you go after asset classes. And as long as the geographical area hits certain triggers or markers, you just tell your team you're allowed to go in there. And as the next pieces, if it hits the next triggers, then we'll look at these asset classes. So you break down your asset class by area, then by the trigger points to see if it's a worthy asset class for you. And if it hits your certain markers, whether the markers mean, hey, it'll probably survive the next recession and we'll, and we'll be able to live through it and things like that and maintain the asset on the other end. Or if it's in an area that's, hey, this market's not going to collapse as hard because it's an emerging market where it's got so much government involvement right now, there's no way it can collapse, right? So those two factors would play in a role. You're like, okay, we'll only invest in mobile home parks outside of a government compound where the wives, like, and then there's so many... You know, wives living there or women living there because that's what demographic you're looking for because it's all the people going to the military base and that's where their spouses live right now because it's convenient for everybody. And you may say, that's my niche now. That's exactly what we want. That's what my team's going to track after. So that's the benefit is that you can niche down and get so specific and understand your asset class so well that people will trust and back behind you financially for you to go after these things because you're probably going to be the expert in the area. Yeah. How should investors approach risk management when exploring different niches? Always maintain, I say, at least a 25 to 30% equity spread because across the nation, that was our general drop that we had um, in 08. Some places got hit, obviously, much harder. Some places got hit less as hard because of different factors in the area. So maintain equity will keep you safe in most circumstances because the worst case scenario you want to be able to do is sell a property or, or, you know, dispose of it in some manner, right? That, you know, salvages your lender relationships and things of that nature. So that's like number one and properly analyzing that equity. Most people get a little bit deal crazy and stir crazy and start going with as the equity trends keep going up. They're like, oh yeah, that's obviously what the market's doing. But you know, it may be artificial inflation for some reason around the area, just like whenever we had COVID and toilet paper was sold out, right? Now there was, you know, some inflation on that that wasn't, it was arbitrary because it was just temporary for the moment. And then you go from selling toilet paper <laughs> on eBay for a thousand bucks a set to, oh, look, it's back to regular price. You know, that was a mistake, right? So looking at things like that and uh, understanding your metrics that have been put in place and never, ever break them. If you got to have 30% equity, that is your rules. If the market has to have a population of 250,000 people inside of it, then that's your rules. If it has to be within you know half a mile from a new developing highway, that is your rules, right? These are things that you never, ever break. And you just get non-emotional to the asset class and to the deal. It's just like, hey, you go by the numbers, analyze it, and make sure everything looks right. Yeah. That's it. Good stuff. What role does diversity play in the real estate investor's portfolio? 
What role does diversity play inside the real estate investor's portfolio? I think it plays a huge role. The reason is is that you have some asset classes that will appreciate more than others and some that will make much heavier cash flow than others, right? In real estate, there's only four real metrics that people are making money. Depreciation, appreciation, debt service, and cash flow, right? That's your really four metrics that you're going to make on most real estate assets. So those are what you're trying to diversify, right? So you've got certain assets that that's what you're banking on is just to pay down and you're not making a ton of cash flow and other assets that if you structure it with a business or something like that, like shared housing or Airbnb, you can make heavier cash flow. And maybe you need the depreciation on a tax write-off. So you're, you're diversifying your portfolio, one, to keep it balanced out so you're not having a huge tax burden, as well as keeping it diversified in the time of a collapse that you're either in different markets or different arenas or different zip codes even that are helping you have a maintained asset class and diversified portfolio in the event something does collapse. So that's the goal. It's for maintenance is what diversification is for. Making sure in any circumstance, COVID hits and all you do is you're a landlord and then you were inside of a state that was not landlord friendly and you lost everything because of that. That's a massive problem, right? You weren't diversified. You only did that one thing. But if you had some seller finance houses, some Airbnbs that people got booted out of, now you have new strategies of those properties, right? If you had some flips going to keep churning in the background to keep everything upheld, that's great. So diversification is key. If you're a one-trick pony, you're probably going to get kicked. Like, that's the rules with it. Yeah. How should an investor's strategy evolve as they gain more experience? How should an investor strategy evolve as they gain more experience? It should support your long-term goals, right? So like you start learning new things. Hey, there's never been a billionaire made inside of residential real estate. That may be a massive problem to you. You say, hey, that's not going to work because that is where my goals are heading. Well, then you now know you must make a change. Like you can utilize that to evolve into commercial real estate or start acquiring business or whatever it is. But once you learn these new rules that or at least, you know, establish some metrics that no one else has surpassed into the past, then you now know you have to adapt to that. So as you learn and adapt and learn new things with your new experience level, make sure that you have reevaluated, stopped, took a third person view at your business and said, does this support what I'm trying to chase or am I just caught up in the day to day? And that's what you have to do is stop, go, go on vacation, whatever it is, analyze, does this take me where I want to take or am I just acquiring properties now because it's fun? That's what I've been doing. And it's not actually supporting where I want to be. I'm just good at real estate now. Yeah. So. so lastly, what advice do you have for investors looking to scale their real estate business sustainably? So for real estate investors looking to scale their business sustainably, you, well, so you can scale your business sustainably. But will it survive some sort of uh, some tar some type? Will it survive some type of economic collapse? Who knows? And with that being said, you can take certain measures to assist it in its survival. Right? If you're targeting the lowest income people in the markets, well, what we've seen inside other collapses is that the middle class gets destroyed, the lower class survives, and the upper class survives. Right? Because the richest uh, have enough money to sustain. And the middle class just creates a bigger lower class because the poor people were still poor. They're still at the bottom. And the middle class became you know, unable to maintain their own family life. So they had to degrade their lifestyle to become lower class. So staying in one of those two metrics, one will help you long term to maintain through you know, the economy, ups and downs and things. And to scale, going from your free leads to pay leads and not being a one-trick pony in your marketing. Most people that have scaled out big acquisition businesses of acquiring real estate have multiple avenues. They're strong in their PPC leads, their SEO, their, you know, what list and things they're calling of that nature. 
Facebook ads, like they've really structured out online as well as all the direct mail campaigns and their cold callers are being tested daily and you know being updated on how to operate and things like that. And staying compliant with rules, the government can shut you down fast, right? So so that's a lot of big key factors being able to scale efficiently in your acquisitions and hang on to your assets long term. There's always some middle niche ground. So it depends on how far and how big you want to scale, right? Because you can build this big money-eating machine that's all about single-family houses, then decide, hey, nobody's became a billionaire in this arena. Maybe I waste my time. Maybe I need to learn some things about multifamily and such. So maybe it's worth scaling back that business now or stopping that business completely to analyze this new asset class and head in the new direction you need to go. So being able to stop and analyze and reflect on your current circumstances in business is probably one of the biggest things. Every quarter you should stop, take two to five days and just reflect back on your business, get out of the ins and outs, don't be going to projects and things like that, go somewhere quiet, whether it's your living room with a book or it's on the beach somewhere, whatever your preference is, you have to stop and analyze is this going to support my long-term goals? What's going on to the economy? Because if you're too caught up in your day-to-day and you're not networking with people who know these answers, then you have to have the five days to reflect on it, have some good conversations, and learn what's actually going on in the world. And are you going to maintain through all of it, or are you going to keep growing the way you are now? So those are effective strategies to scale your business sustainably. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all of that, Christopher. Yeah, I know this one was a shorter podcast, but... This was a quick, just answering pretty much question and answers that we had come in. So this was good. It was quick, dirty. Next time we hope to have some more questions and uh, hope we can dig deeper into them and give people some actual steps on what they've got going on and things like that. So to the next one. All right. Bye, guys. See ya.